In military history, there is a Latin phrase, nemo residio, that captures a principle that many modern and ancient armies hold dear. Nemo residio can be translated, leave no man behind. And the principle of this in warfare is that if an army is in a battle and they are taking casualties, deaths or injuries, that armies, soldiers covenant together with one another essentially to leave no man on the battlefield, to, uh, to allow no man to remain in enemy custody. Leave no man behind. Many of you have probably seen war movies where a bunch of Marines start taking casualties and some guy's dead or injured out in the battlefield and it makes no sense from a human perspective to rescue him because almost assuredly those that are trying to rescue him will also be shot or killed. But nevertheless, they put their lives on the line based upon a principle, leave no man behind, and they, they, they try their best to go out and rescue their comrade. Now, whenever I see depictions of that in modern films, I, I always think to myself, that is not very practical. It doesn't make sense because all of us have within us a desire to preserve our own lives. So if, if one of your friends is dead, you're going to mourn that obviously, but why would you put other people's lives at line, on the line. Why would you unnecessarily expose yourself to suffering to save someone who is injured or to retrieve a body from the battlefield? Well, this is where we need to understand that sometimes principles outweigh pragmatics. The principle behind it is that if a group of men or a group of women are are in armed combat together, that each person is going to fight better knowing that no matter what happens, they will go home. So the principle here, Nemo Residio, outweighs the potential for actually heightening your casualties on a battlefield. Now, our primary goal as Christians is very similar. As Christians, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you've never thought about this, but we are actually exposing ourselves to suffering. You understand that? When we sign up for Christ's army, we are exposing ourselves to suffering, to persecution, to heightened trials and heightened tribulations. And from a human perspective, at times we forget about the principle that God has put in front of us, and that is the principle of laying down our lives and living sacrificially for him. And we fall into self-protection mode. But as Christians, through the eyes of faith, we must allow our principles to be out in front of the practical considerations that we might have in terms of the suffering we might experience because of our walk with Christ. If that makes sense to you, I hope it does. In the book of Philippians we learn that our primary goal in life must be the advancement of the gospel. So I'm going to call this the principle. Our primary goal must be the advancement of the gospel. 
And yet, as we go about declaring and preaching and living out the gospel, we will expose ourselves to suffering, necessarily. But as Christians, we need to be willing to expose ourselves to suffering and actually see suffering as a privilege and as a blessing because we understand who Christ is and we understand that in the end, even if we take heat, even if we take casualties, we will win the war. So principle over pragmatics. So join me in the book of Philippians. We're going to be studying chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. This is a new sermon series. We started it last week, and we've entitled it Beloved, because you are loved, Stand Firm, because we all need to stand firm in our faith. And as we look around us and we see Western society collapsing, Christianity being not just pushed to the sidelines, but pushed off a proverbial cliff, so to speak. As we find ourselves not in a post-Christian, but increasingly in an anti-Christian culture, pragmatic considerations can easily take us off track. We can think, you know, at all costs, I need to protect myself. I need to protect the church. I need to protect myself from suffering. I need to avoid further casualties. But Christ has actually called us to suffer. And this principle of embracing suffering, of leaning into suffering, will actually help us to advance the gospel. So let's read verses 12 to 14. And I think what we're going to learn here is that suffering for Christ advances the gospel. It might not make sense from a human perspective, but suffering for Christ advances the gospel. This was Paul's experience as he found himself in prison for his faith and he was ministering to the Philippian church. Here's what he said. He said, I want you to know brothers. Brothers is a term that is a reference to the whole Christian church because we're a spiritual family. I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What happened to him? He was in jail for his faith. He was suffering for Christ. But he understood through the eyes of faith that it, his temporal suffering was serving to advance the gospel. So in that sense, he embraced suffering, even though it doesn't make sense from a human perspective to do so. He embraced his suffering because he saw that it was being used of by God to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's how. So that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord in my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul describes the kind of ministry that had resulted from his imprisonment really in glowing terms. And he wants us to know about it. He wants us to be aware of it so that when our turn comes, and it will, and for many of us it has, we will be able to stand firm and remain principled even if from a human perspective it doesn't make sense. Even if from a human perspective everything is in you is saying, run from the suffering, flee from the persecution, get away from the trials, protect yourself. No, no. God wants us to stay on the battlefield. 
and to keep fighting for him. There's several things that Paul outlines here in terms of benefits. In verse 12, he tells us that his suffering served to advance the gospel. This really begs us to think about the question, do we have a proper theology of suffering as it relates to our discipleship as followers of Christ? Do we understand it? I'm not sure that many of us do in the Christian church today. Because one of the realities of our culture up to recently is it's been, we've had, we've had it pretty good. It's, it's pretty cushy being a Christian. It's pretty cushy being a Canadian. I mean, we have all sorts of security. We have wealth, we have prosperity. We have lots of opportunities in all areas of life. And so we come to church when we have leftover time and we serve God when we have leftover time. And, you know, once in a while, someone might call us a name or whatever. But for the most part, up till recently, it's, it's been pretty easy being a Christian. And so many preachers in the last few generations have scratched their head and thought to themselves, well, how do I get people into church? I know. I'm going to tell them that their best life is now. I'm going to tell them that if they come to church, the problems and challenges that they have will go away. I'm going to preach a health, a wealth, and a prosperity gospel in the here and now. I'm going to tell them that if they're just faithful to Christ, that life is going to be great. And many of the ways that we set up our ministries, very sanitized, very professional, you know, very full of glitter and glam, actually sort of communicate subliminally to many in the modern church today that being a Christian is easy. Being a Christian is easy. I remember a depiction that Søren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, um, described many years ago in one of his books. He said, he was sitting in church one day and it, and it dawned on him. He said, and, we, and we, come, we come to church as Christians do. And he was looking around and he, and he noticed this, the beautiful stained glass windows and the, the velvet padding on the pews. And the preacher walked up front and he had his richly ornamented garb on. And he had a big Bible with gold gilding on it and a big ribbon. And he opened up his big gold gilded Bible, and he put his big purple ribbon down the center of it. So you're picturing this, right? Much like our auditorium in our lives today, we have comfortable chairs, we have a nice auditorium, you know, we have air conditioning. And then he started reading from the scriptures and the text that he picked was to the effect of, you know, whoever wants to follow me must lay down his life and take up his cross and follow me. And he was struck with the irony you know, we come to church and we're called to sacrifice it all, but really we're in the most comfortable place on earth. And in many respects, this is true of the modern church. Now things are quickly changing, right? We've taken some heat in the last year or two. But what the, the, the point I would like to make is that in our, in our mindset about suffering and trial and tribulation, it's sometimes hard for us to understand how in the world can suffering go together with faith? Isn't faith and following Jesus and surrendering our lives to Jesus all about getting rid of suffering 
you know, getting rid, getting out of poverty, getting out of isolation and loneliness, but not in Paul's mindset. In Paul's mindset, suffering is one of God's choice tools to actually advance the gospel. So we don't want to contribute to suffering in the world, of course. But we need to understand that suffering is one of God's choice tools. So when Paul saw suffering in his own life, as he's in prison, writing this to people who aren't in prison, he basically describes describes suffering as advantageous rather than destructive to advancing the Christian faith. Think about that. Now, I do suspect that some of us are starting to experientially see that taking place in the world around us. So as we suffer for Christ, I mean, the stuff that's happened in the last year and a half are extremely discouraging from a human perspective. The tickets, the fines, the the hypocrisy, the lies, the lack of equity, all that. It's very difficult to witness. And, And we want it to all go away, right? We want it to all go away. And we've done our protests and we've written our letters and we've signed our petitions. But from a spiritual perspective, God is working like never before in the modern Canadian church. And it's wonderful to see God transforming people's lives and people having to count the cost. And those that do not want to count the cost have fled. They're home, but they're not safe. In verse 29 of the same passage, I'll just skip ahead. It's not part of our primary preaching text today, but I'll skip ahead to chapter one, verse 29. This is further evidence that Paul saw suffering as a gift. This is an, an incredible verse. Listen to this, Philippians 1:29. For it has been granted to you, speaking to the church, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. It's like, oh, okay, I, I get that. So for the sake of Christ, I, I believe in him, yep. I have faith, I've been saved, but listen to the rest of it. But also suffer for his sake. So what's Paul saying there? God has given you a gift. He's given you the gift of belief. Yeah, we like that, we get that. But he's also given you the gift of suffering. It's like, hey, we get to suffer for Jesus, folks. What a privilege. We get to suffer for Christ. We get to be called names for Jesus. Yeah. We get to be harassed and persecuted for Jesus. Right on. From a human perspective, we don't want that. We want to run from it. Just like the Marine, it's like, why would I go out there and rescue that guy? I might put myself on the line. Because on principle, it's the right thing to do. And he knows the long-term results of it. And in the same way, we suffer for Christ. In the here and now, we don't want to suffer. And we want to actually, as a church, work against suffering in our world. But at the same time, we hold intention, this belief that God does amazing things. And we are blessed to suffer for Christ. So there are some practical considerations that flow out of this reality. Number one, Never blame God for the problems that you have, but rather look 
and consider how God wants you to redeem them for his honor and for your good. Have you noticed that oftentimes we get into a bit of a funk in our faith, a bit of a a pickle, some challenging times. All of a sudden we're like, hey God, where are you, man? I thought we had a deal. I've been going to church. I've been serving. I've been tithing. I thought you were going to make my life a cakewalk, bed of roses. We start to blame God. Blaming God for suffering is to completely misunderstand discipleship. If you're not suffering for Christ, you should be very concerned. Something's wrong. But if you are suffering for Christ, and obviously suffering takes place in different ways and different levels, but if you are suffering for Christ, you should count it a privilege. We also need to be careful how we preach the gospel to people. So if you've come to our church today for the first, second, or third, or fifth time, and you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to make sure that you leave here with no ambiguity. If you're considering putting your faith in Christ and turning your life over to Christ, I don't want you to think in any way, shape, or form that your life in the here and now is going to get better. It's probably going to get worse. But I can tell you this, in the long haul, when you stand before God, it's going to be awesome. You see, we're born in sin. We act out sinfully. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to die for our sin and to pay the full penalty for our sin. And he, through faith, secures us a place in heaven. But until we get there, we're supposed to walk in the footsteps of Christ and advance his mission. And just as Jesus suffered in order to provide us with eternal life, so when we follow Jesus Christ, we suffer. Jesus walks in the, uh, on the paths of suffering. He, he didn't live in a big old mansion and have it comf- comfortable and cozy and have everything he wanted. He suffered. We love him for that. And, and in the same way, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you that you will have eternal life and joy forevermore to look forward to. But in the here and now, more people will hate you than hate you now. People will despise you because the world loves darkness rather than light. You need to be aware of that. Your best life isn't now, Joel Osteen. It's in the future. So if you're considering Christ, make sure you understand this. But there's a second principle that Paul stresses in verse 13. And that is, he was blessed to hear about, to hear that the, the news was spreading. There was, a gr- there was growing news of his Christ-centered purpose. More and more people were starting to understand that Paul was there for Christ, he says. His words are, it became known throughout the whole imperial guard, the praetorio. Remember the praetorian guards? That's where this word comes from. It became clear throughout all the in the minds and ears of all the Roman soldiers, that he was there for Christ. So even his captors were hearing word that he was there for Christ. And then it says to all the rest, all the rest likely means his fellow prisoners. There were probably other Christians that were in there for Christ. Maybe some that weren't Christians yet. 
point is everybody was finding out that Paul was there for Christ. We don't know how long it took. Could have, could have taken months, months and months and months. But it was becoming clear to all why he was there. And this is an encouragement too, because if, if for, for example, we are thrown in jail for our faith, and it's happened in Canada a few times already, we can be assured that we have a new ministry venue to serve in. Some of the best ministry takes place in, in jails. Some of the best ministry takes place in hospitals as we visit the sick and dying. Some of the best ministries take place in difficult places that we otherwise might not want to be and in difficult circumstances. But if we understand that suffering for Christ is our call, then we could say that suffering becomes a living announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we suffer with him for that purpose. And then Paul also wants to teach us that his suffering served to help other people to grow in boldness and courage, which I think we all need. I think all of us need more courage and more boldness on some level. He says he's confident in the Lord. He speaks of the fact that his suffering had served to increase the confidence of other believers. They were, look at the language here, they became increasingly bold. They were willing to speak the word and they became fearless. I, um, I stressed this a week or two ago in my sermon, but I want to stress it again. Ultimately, we follow Jesus, not one another. Ultimately, we follow Jesus. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. I'm not your Lord, and I'm not your Savior, and you're not mine. Ultimately, we follow the Lord, and we want to have, make sure each of us has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We understand this. But let's not assume that that's all there is to the Christian faith. The Christian faith is also interdependent. It's being part of a community. It's being part of a spiritual family. If that spiritual family is 15 people or 5,000 people, whatever. But we all are called to be part of a church community under the watchful care of qualified elders, celebrating the Lord's Supper, practicing baptisms, a duly organized New Testament local church. We're all called to be part of that. And this is is a good thing. And within that context, we understand that Christianity, listen to this, is an imitative faith. It's an imitative faith. So much of what we're learning is actually not directly from Jesus. We're watching each other and we're seeing how Jesus and God and his spirit has worked in other people's lives And we're learning at times directly from God in our personal relationship with God, but we're also learning from one another. This is why we have all these one another's of scripture. We encourage each other. We discipline each other. We rebuke each other. We serve each other. It's an imitative faith. That means that the healthier the church are and the healthier you potentially will be. Because we're, we're observing one another. And when we see people that are bold and courageous and fearless, what does it do for us? I'm gonna be more bold. I'm going to be more courageous. I'm going to be more fearless. Paul was all of these things, and it was rubbing off on others. He's like, this is great. 
One of the greatest living sermons is not the ones you preach with your mouth, but the ones you live out in your response to suffering and trial and tribulation. It has a massive impact upon other people. So while I may have more airtime preaching the word of God to you with my words, all of us have the same amount of time in any given week to preach the word of God to help to increase other people's boldness with our actions. The way we respond to suffering is a living sermon to those around us. Well, motive, of course, matters is kind of the next message Paul wants to deliver to us. One might assume that all biblical preaching will bear out these kinds of results, but Paul also wants to warn the church to make sure that they're taking stock of their own motives. So the next point we're going to look at in verses 15 and following is that motive motive matters, but at the same time, the message matters more. So follow Paul's train of thinking here. Starting with verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ, unfortunately, from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So this, this is, in, in the text, what we would call a parenthesis. It's like a sidebar, but it's really important. So he's like, preach Christ, look at all the great things that come about as, preach, as a result of preaching Christ, even in prison, even in our suffering. He goes through his list of, of benefits and blessings. But then he just kind of has this little sidebar conversation with us and reminds us that People can preach Christ, but some do so for the wrong motives and some do so for the right motives. So there's this contrast. On one hand, we have those that preach out of envy and rivalry, he calls it. And then on the other hand, we have those that preach out of goodwill and love. In Philippians chapter three, there's a group of people that Paul chastises and confronts called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were were early quote unquote, I want to put them in quotes, Christians who nevertheless were trying to take Judaic principles like following the ceremonial laws and so forth, circumcision, and were seeking to foist those upon the early church. And they were basically saying, well, yeah, salvation is by grace through faith alone, but you also have to do all of this stuff to truly be a Christian. And Paul's like, yeah, no way. He speaks out against that very, very um, straightforwardly, especially in books like uh, Galatians, where he actually says, actually, you're going to be damned. He uses the word anathema, which means damned. You're going to be damned if you preach a gospel other than the one we give to you. So he's really confronting anyone who tries to add works to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some have suggested that the ones he's speaking of here who are guilty of envy and rivalry are the Judaizers, who, by the way, he calls dogs in um, chapter three. That's why I'm big into calling people names. I think it's great. Um, As long as they're biblical names. 
But Paul calls them dogs, which by the way is, is ironic because the Judaizers called Gentiles dogs. It was a, a, a very, very crass way of referring to people that were outside of faith. Paul calls these people that think they're in the faith dogs. But I don't think that the people that Paul is referring to here in Philippians chapter one are actually the Judaizers because there's no indication in this text that the people he's confronting are preaching a false gospel. So the, the words that are coming out of their mouths are accurate, are accurate and true to the gospel. But what he's confronting is their motives. So they're, they're doing the right thing, but they're not properly motivated. The Judaizers, we don't, know about, we don't know about their motives, but they were saying the wrong thing. But here they were saying the right thing, but their motives were off. And Paul has to confront them. And of course, um, I'm not sure if this is part of your normal approach to falsehood, but we, we all have both the right and the responsibility to confront falsehood when it comes to the gospel. And here he's confronting motive. So we have the words envy and rivalry. Let's think about that for a minute. He's basically telling us there are some preachers that preach Christ, but they are preaching it. Envy and rivalry requires what? Comparing yourself to someone else. They're comparing themselves to someone else and they're preaching by comparing themselves to some other preacher down the street or across the province. And they're actually competing with other preachers. They're maybe copying other preachers. They're, they're bad-mouthing other preachers. They're denouncing other preachers, whatever, whatever it might be. And there's times to denounce other preachers because Paul denounced the Judaizers in chapter three, but they're doing it with improper motives. So one of the things we all need to be careful of is what motivates us to serve Christ, to suffer for Christ, to preach Christ. Is it competitiveness? Nothing wrong with learning from other churches, but is it competitiveness? Is it, is it trying to make ourselves look good and all other churches look bad? We need to be careful about this, even though there's lots of bad churches out there, false churches. We need to be careful that we're properly motivated when we denounce other churches. Are we denouncing them because they're preaching a false gospel or just because we want to feel better about ourselves, our tribe? We need to be careful about this. And then selfish ambition. It actually implies in the text that these preachers had denounced Paul in his imprisonment. Hmm, sounds kind of familiar. I, I remember a few preachers in Canada being denounced by other preachers in Canada in the last year. I said, well, they're, they're not properly motivated. They're just, they're just seeking attention. Or they don't understand Romans 13 or, you know, they're, they're, they're just looking for money, whatever it might be. Selfish ambition. Paul denounces those that are motivated by jealousy or want the applause of men. Folks, we need to be super careful about this. We need to make sure that when we preach the gospel and serve Christ and suffer for Christ, that it's actually for Christ. For Christ. Not for self. Not to feel better about yourself. Not so that you can one-up others, but for Christ. If we don't get selfish ambition, envy, and rivalry out of our lives, where does it lead? Well, it, it often leads to compromise, either in the immediate or long haul, 
We're so concerned about protecting ourselves and our reputation and that we start to compromise morally, theologically. It leads to inauthenticity. If you're always comparing yourself to other people, you're motivated by rivalry, jealousy. You start to put on a show. You, you're no longer the real deal. You're concerned about what everyone else thinks. And, and over time, people pick up on that. Pride and attention-seeking behavior can erupt from these false motives. Disappointment. At the, at the end of the day, people that are marked by jealousy and envy and rivalry, they're never really satisfied. Because as soon as they one up Preacher Smith, well, suddenly there's Preacher Jones to now catch up to. You, you, never, you never really are satisfied. There's always someone you're trying to be better than. It leads to, to deep disappointment. If you're new to ministry or you are interested in pursuing ministry vocationally or as a lay person, I just want to share with you a few lessons that I've learned over the years. <laughs> if, you, if you're motivated to maybe up your game in ministry because you think, oh, you know what? I go to work in this quote-unquote secular job and it doesn't really satisfy me. And what Aaron does looks like, looks like a blast. Right? Um, I'd love to be a preacher. I'd love to be a, a youth pastor. I'd love to be on the church's worship team. I mean, singing in the chair, eh, singing up front. It's great to aspire to public ministry. But here's a few lessons that I've learned in ministry, maybe just to kind of take the edge off your enthusiasm. One is this, that for every person who encourages you, there's a long line of people willing to discourage you. You need to know that. They really are. So don't rely upon others for ultimate satisfaction. Encouragement comes and goes in waves. There might be all kinds of people encouraging you one week, one month, and then you don't hear anything for months. So if you're motivated by a pat on the back, well, you're not going to last very long because there's going to be time, long periods of time where you ain't getting any pats on the back. Secondly, for every victory you have over evil, there's a hundred more waiting to be dealt with. Like ministry is never done. You're never like, okay, uh, we're done. We have no more ministry to do for a while. We're gonna have to wait for God to open up more doors. I like building things. You, know, you build a shed, a garage, you fix something. And there's a point when you can step back and say, I'm done. I don't need to drive one more nail, install one more piece of siding, all the shingles are on, I'm done. You'll never say that in ministry. You can never say I'm done. It just, it just keeps going. Some people are motivated by money. I want to go into ministry because I'm going to make lots of money. Folks, for every dollar you can make in ministry, you can make many, many more dollars elsewhere. Many, many more dollars elsewhere. It's not about the money. People sometimes are attracted to ministry because they want influence. They want to influence other people. They want a following. Well, the influence, and ministry does provide influence, but the influence that ministry affords people, you need to know this, also puts you in a place of incredible vulnerability. Vulnerability to criticism, attack, failure, and disappointment in others and in yourself. You need to be aware of that. 
The final lesson, there's many more I could share, but these came to mind. No matter how clear you communicate, there will be many times when you're misunderstood. So just a little bit of perspective. We're all called to different areas of service. We encourage those that are called to vocational ministry or kind of more prominent areas of ministry to pursue that. If God has given you that stewardship, you should pursue it. You should fan into flame the gift that the Lord has given to you. But make sure you know what you're getting yourself into because it may not be as glamorous as you think. In brief, if it's about you, you will fail. It has to be about Christ. Therefore, there's no room for envy or rivalry or self-ambition in ministry. And if you feel a little bit of that starting to grow inside of you, you need to bring it to the Lord and kill it right away. Each of us must be open-handed in our stewardship or the Lord will replace us. And he often does and has. So these, this is the negative side. The positive side is what should motivate us to serve the Lord? Well, goodwill, meaning we need to be well-intentioned. Well-intentioned. And love. We serve because we love our, our fellow Christians. We love God's church. We love the flock. We want to invest in the flock. We want to defend the flock, just like a good shepherd. This is an analogy that scripture uses. A, a shepherd carries a staff. And he's not out there just petting sheep all day long, feeding them grass. Sometimes he's going to give the sheep a little whack. Sometimes he has to pull the sheep out of a pit it's fallen into. Sometimes he has to leave the 99 and pursue some dumb sheep that's wandered away. Sometimes he has to defend his sheep from diseased sheep that are trying to get into his flock. Ministry is multifaceted, but all of it needs to be motivated by love. If you're defending your flock, it's out of love. If you're disciplining your flock, it's out of love. If you're shearing your sheep, it's out of love. If you're feeding them, it's out of love. This is the motive that keeps us in the game, folks, in the ministry long term. Now, what I love about Paul is that Paul is principled but he's also appropriately pragmatic. Some people think, oh, you can only be principled or pragmatic. You can't be both. Paul is fundamentally principled, but he also has some pragmatism in him. So he's denouncing those that serve out of envy and rivalry and jealousy. But then he's also like, hey, but by the way, don't let them distract you too much. Because even someone who's ill-motivated can be used by God. So he, he has this interesting perspective here. He's like, well, the, but the gospel is still being preached. So I think what Paul is communicating is we should police one another for bad motives, but we shouldn't over-police one another. Policing one another too much can actually be a distraction from ministry. So you know, there's some churches, they have to have absolute purity on every single point, or it's just intolerable. They feel they're, they're compromises. If if everyone in the church isn't perfect, if everyone isn't you know, baptized, blood-bought believers and members with a King James Bible and 50 verses memorized, you're not welcome in our church. 
we want to police each other's behavior and we obviously want to speak into each other's lives and want to keep the standards high and want to preach the truth hard. But we can't spend all of our time disciplining the, the flock. We can't spend all of our time laying awake at night. I wonder if that guy's got the right motives. Like, that's exhausting. Because at the end of the day, if ministry's taking place, ministry's taking place. So Paul is very principled. But he also is pragmatic enough to say, I won't be distracted from continuing to do ministry if I happen to think or suspect that someone is ill-motivated. Is Paul advocating for a theology of heartless, selfless evangelism? No. Nor is he diminishing the qualifications for office or for the offices of the church or serving the purposes of God. No, the standards remain. But at the end of the day, the reality is many will be led to Christ by the preaching and teaching of people that don't have it all together. This is one of the things that concerns me in the modern church. We keep the standards high, but you, sometimes you hear of some preacher or teacher that has produced great books or preached great sermons, and suddenly you find out there's some major issue in his life, and everyone just runs from the guy and pretends they don't even know him. The books are coming off the shelf, going into the fireplace, the sermons are being deleted on your, you know, your podcast in case someone discovers that, or your... your, your um, Spotify account, in case someone discovers you're listening to them. <laughs> it's kind of an overreaction. Okay, there, there's, folks, there's always going to be failures. I might turn out to be a total failure. You know that's possible? I'm not a perfect person. I, I might compromise myself. I hope to God I don't. But it doesn't mean everything I've done and everything I've preached is all um, garbage. We're never going to utter Aaron Rock's name again. Delete all his sermons, rip up... Take all his podcasts and articles. The guy was a fraud. Hey, folks, we all have imperfections. And the Lord is going to use, we keep the standards high, but the Lord is going to use people even with flaws and imperfections to advance his kingdom. So I think there's some balance here that the Lord is calling us to consider. At the end of the day, we can find confidence that the gospel message always trumps and transcends bad motives. Thank God for that. So let's suffer well for Christ. Let's serve him well. Let's check our motives along the way with the belief that God will continue to purify and sanctify his church as we suffer and stay true to him. And may he be honored and glorified through each of our lives as we do just that. 